Hey friends, if y'all don't know me, my name is Jeff. I'm a Master's of Divinity student at Duke Divinity School, and I have decided again to start a new podcast. This one is going to be called the Bibliosacra Podcast, which Bibliosacra is just a Latin phrase. It means the sacred Bible. And I decided to name this podcast that because I'm convinced that the Bible is in fact sacred and that it actually has something to say to us today. And so this is going to be a podcast about what I'm honestly most passionate about intellectually and even just personally in my own spiritual walk with the Lord. And that is how is it that we can interpret scripture and how do we read scripture well? How is it that these texts that were written 2,000 years ago and sometimes even longer than that ago? How, how is it that these texts are so old and so so removed from our own day say something to us? How does it they still speak to us? And so this is a podcast about the Bible and how to read the Bible and how to read scripture well. And I'm really excited for that. And so our first topic is somewhat is a somewhat controversial topic. And the title is, What Does the Bible Have to Say About Women in Ministry? And Can Women Be Pastors? And first... I just want to say that I'm hoping to have this conversation uh, with with a genuine sense of humility and knowing that genuine Christians, genuine gospel-believing Christians disagree on this question. And I think that's really important to say. But the first thing that we're going to talk about related to this question is how how is it that we can say the Bible says anything about anything? And I think we're going to see that that's actually, it's a little more complicated to say that the Bible says something or that the Bible teaches something about something, quoting individual verses and saying, therefore, the Bible teaches this. I'm going to argue and like maybe just hopefully lovingly and humbly suggest that, that to say scripture teaches something, we, we might need to do more than just quote individual verses and say, here's this, therefore the Bible teaches this. And that the task of biblical interpretation actually might be a little more complex than that. That's not to say it's impossible. That's not even to say really that it is that hard, which I think it is in a sense hard, but it's also in a sense very simple. And so we're going to start with kind of outlining the, the contours, like the frame of the task of interpreting scripture. And so I thought it would be helpful to start just by quoting the individual verses that some people typically quote or cite to say the Bible teaches or the Bible says that women can't, like the most the most conservative of these interpreters might say that women aren't allowed to speak in church. Some would say women definitely, per the Bible and per what the Bible teaches, aren't allowed to be pastors. And then some would say that per what the New Testament says and Paul's letters say, women definitely aren't allowed to participate alongside men in gospel ministry and in sharing the gospel. And I want to quote those individual verses for us because I think, one, it's just helpful to know that this is in the New Testament. So maybe when we encounter people that have questions about them, we might have a response for those questions. And two, it, it, it is helpful to just know our Bibles and to know what's in the Bible. And these, these verses are in the Bible. And so I want to quote them just so that we know they're there. But then I also, alongside those quotations of these individual verses, want to quote other single verses of scripture that anyone and everyone would say is problematic if we just just quote that individual verse to say here's what the bible says here's what the bible teaches because look at this single verse and so i want to show in a way that that's not the best way to interpret scripture theologically and that the task of biblical interpretation might deal with more than just quoting individual verses. And so let's start with looking at the passages of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that some quote to say 
women can't be pastors, women can't teach, women can't speak in church, or women can't participate in gospel ministry alongside men. And so the first one of these is in 1 Timothy. It's 1 Timothy 2.12. If you have a Bible and you want to read along with me, if you want to pull it up on your phone, feel welcome to do that. Feel free to do that. 1 Timothy 2.12, this is the the NRSV, says, quote, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent, end quote. And so just one important thing about 1 Timothy And I think it's important that we as Christians know this. Most New Testament scholars would say that 1 Timothy was probably not authored by Paul. I think that it's important for us to know that. Traditionally, the church has said that 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his disciple or student or co-worker, like co-laborer in the gospel, Timothy, who was younger than Paul. And who, for anyone who's familiar with the book of Acts, we see that Timothy and Paul have a pretty important relationship with one another and were two very prominent names within the early church. I agree with the majority of New Testament scholars who would say Paul didn't actually write 1 Timothy, but that question is kind of insignificant for the question at hand relating to women preaching and teaching and participating in gospel ministry. But so that's the first verse, and it might be the most famous. The next one is Paul's first letter to Corinth. And this is actually just a fun fact, and maybe something else we should know about our Bibles, is that we call 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, because it's the first surviving letter of Paul's that we have to the Corinthian churches. But one thing that is significant is we we know, and most modern New Testament scholars, scholars know and argue, that 1 Corinthians was actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthian churches, and that we've actually lost the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. So that's just something that we maybe ought to know, and something that's kind of cool. But this is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, and this is also the NRSV, if you want to follow along. Paul writes, and this is Paul writing, undoubtedly. 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's undisputed letters. Um, just something, an, another thing we should know. There are seven undisputed letters of Paul that are, they're called undisputed letters because they're undisputed. New Testament scholars unanimously, for the most part, agree that all seven of these letters were written by Paul. We could actually, we could do a podcast on that one day. This is Paul, for sure. He writes, quote, Women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be subordinate, as the law also says. And so that's maybe a second verse that is commonly quoted to say, hey, women should be silent in the churches. Therefore, they are not permitted to preach. One thing that is significant about this passage is that earlier in the same letter in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, and this is starting in verse 4, if you want to follow along, any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled, disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. Now, despite the strange the strange talk about women having something on her head, I'm not sure what Paul's talking about there. A lot of New Testament scholars aren't sure. There's a, a lot of debate as to why Paul is saying there what he's saying. But one thing we know he's saying for certain is that in the Corinthian church, women prophesied. And now I I think we all know that if if women are prophesying, that kind of assumes and presupposes that they're speaking. So when we read Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 14, later in the same letter where he says, quote, women should be silent in the churches, end quote, we ought to read that in light of what we've already read in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says women are prophesying. 
So we know, I think we can know, and we ought to know, that Paul is not saying in 1 Corinthians 14 what a lot of modern interpreters of the of the 1 Corinthian letter want to think he's saying. He's not saying that women aren't permitted to speak or even to teach because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that they are prophesying and that assumes that they're speaking. It also assumes that they're explaining, they're expounding upon the prophecy which they are prophesying. That's, that's how we think prophecy worked in the early church. And so I think that's significant. And there are some other passages in the New Testament, which if you just if you just Googled, if you typed in women teaching in the New Testament, they're going to pop up. We have the household codes in Ephesians 5 that are often quoted. And I would welcome you and encourage you to look those up and to wrestle with them and to ask yourself, what ought we do with them as 21st century Christians who are interpreting these ancient texts? Um, as if they're saying something to us today, and as if God still speaks to us through them today, because I'm convinced that he does, and that God's word is living and active, and that he's speaking to us through these texts. But that doesn't mean that texts don't require interpretation, because the texts do require interpretation. And so this leads us into our next phase of today's podcast, where I want to quote other singular verses out of the Bible, and just ask the question, hey, would any reasonable Christian, would any like Orthodox Christian in the 21st century just quote the Bible, quote this singular Bible verse and say, therefore, the Bible teaches this. Because the Bible says this in this one verse, this is what the Bible teaches. I hope we're going to see that the task of biblical interpretation might be more complex than just quoting singular verses and saying, therefore, the Bible says this. That to say that the Bible says anything actually requires us to do more than just quote individual verses out of Scripture. And so let's look at the first one. And this is Romans 2.13. So it's Paul's letter to the Romans. This, going back to what we said about 1 Corinthians, is another one of the seven undisputed letters of Paul. New Testament scholars, for the most part, universally affirm that this letter is genuinely Pauline. Pauline just meaning it was written by Paul. It's of Pauline nature. It's like Paul. It's like Paul. It's like an adjectival form of the noun Paul. Paul writes in Romans 2.13, quote, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified, end quote. And I quote that single Bible verse to show that if you wanted to, if one wanted to, you could quote the Bible to show that we're in fact not saved by grace, to show that we're not saved by grace through faith, which, if you're familiar with Protestant Christianity and Christianity in general, actually, there's actually a joint declaration on the doctrine of justification by the Roman Catholic Church and by the Lutheran Church that says we're not saved by works, but by grace through faith. So this is actually a universal Christian doctrine. And I, I quote this passage out of Romans to show that if we wanted to, we could quote a Bible verse to show that we're in fact not saved by grace through faith, but we're actually saved by doing the law. So Paul writes very clearly, this is the NRSV, if you want to follow along. He writes very very clearly, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And we should do a podcast on this, but the, the law that Paul is talking about is not just genuinely good works. He's talking about the law of Moses, right? The law that the God of Israel gave to Israel at Mount Sinai and continued to give Israel throughout its covenant history. And so he's talking about the law of Moses. And Paul, Paul is saying, it seems in Romans 2.13, and we could quote him to say that he's saying this, 
They were actually saved by doing the law, not by grace through faith. But I don't think there's any Christian today who would want to say that, especially the Christians who are quoting other words of Paul, like in 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's it's the sort of Christians who are quoting Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, saying that women cannot teach, who are the, the most ardent defenders of the Protestant doctrine or the Christian doctrine of justification by faith alone and not by works or not through the law. And so I think it's a, it's a little ironic. I think those Christians who quote Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14 to say that women can't be pastors, that women can't teach, that women can't participate alongside men in gospel ministry, who would want to say when we get to Paul's words in Romans 2, saying that it is not the hearer of the law who is justified, but the doer of the law who will be justified. They're going to want to say We need to read that individual verse in light of the entire scriptural narrative or witness. And I would I would adamantly agree with them. I would say you hit you're yes, exactly right. You're hitting the nail on the head. And so I think that leads us to talk about the task of biblical interpretation in terms of this question, this question relating to women in ministry and women teaching and doing gospel ministry. Because I think That is how we do biblical theology. That's how we read scripture well. That's how we become good readers of scripture, is reading the scriptural witness from Genesis to Revelation, and then using that entire witness of scripture, the the whole witness of scripture, to craft our doctrinal principles and our doctrine. So rather than quoting individual verses out of their historical context, in their literary context, we ought to read the entire scriptural narrative from Genesis to Revelation, and only then can we answer the foremost questions that we're wrestling with, like, can women be pastors, or can women teach, or can women participate in gospel ministry alongside men? And I think when we wrestle with scripture in that way, from Genesis to Revelation, we reach different conclusions than we would if we're just quoting individual Bible verses. One, I think they're better conclusions. And two, they might be different. And so now I want to lay out some principles of biblical interpretation that might help us answer this question as to whether women can be pastors and as to whether women can teach or preach. And then I want to do a little case study on this question of women in ministry and actually apply these principles to scripture itself to the entirety of the scriptural corpus, to the entirety of the scriptural witness from Genesis to Revelation. And so let's lay out these principles. The first principle of biblical interpretation that we're going to talk about is the principle of historical distance. And by that, I just mean that the texts that we're reading, the texts that are canonized in the Christian Bible, the texts that we call Christian scripture today— were not written today. They were actually written thousands of years ago, and they weren't written in a language that most of us know. And so this is the principle of historical distance. Not only were they written thousands of years ago in languages that we most of us don't know, but they were also they also use language to talk about things that we're not really familiar with. And they talk about things that we're not really familiar with, that were actually really important to them that aren't important to us. And one good one good example of this would be the idea of circumcision. For Paul, particularly, one of the authors of some New Testament documents, um, he wrote a bunch of letters. We've already talked about him a little bit. Circumcision and the question of circumcision and who ought to be circumcised and what, what circumcision really means and what it actually denotes within the covenant people of God is really, really significant for Paul. 
It might have been one of the most significant aspects of his theological reflection on Israel's Messiah, Jesus. So circumcision was very significant for Paul. It is not very significant for us as 21st century Westerners. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about circumcision. Paul did. So that's one one aspect of historical of the historical distance of Paul's letters. This one thing that was really important to Paul that's not at all important to us. And if we're going to understand what it is that Paul is saying, if we're going to understand the depth of what it is that Paul is saying, we need to enter into his world, and we need to hear Paul from within his own world. If we're going to adequately understand what it is that he has to say about anything, especially if we're going to adequately understand what it is that he has to say about something like circumcision, which was very significant in his world as a first century Jew who was doing ministry among non-Jews, among the nations. For us, it's really insignificant. And so we need to enter into his world if we're going to adequately understand him. So that that's the principle of historical distance. And so that principle would, would lead us to attempt to hear Paul from within his own world or to attempt to hear Jesus from within his own world or to attempt to hear any biblical author within their own world. And so that's a really important principle of biblical interpretation. And I think when we come to apply that principle to the question that we're asking today about women in ministry, we'll actually see that the New Testament documents and the New Testament authors were radically empowering of the women of their day compared to other people within their world. And so that's the first principle of biblical interpretation. The second has to do with the literary unity of the documents of the New Testament and of the documents of the Old Testament. And this is a principle that is going to push back against those who would who would quote scripture, who would quote individual pieces or passages or verses of scripture to say, therefore, the Bible teaches this because it says this. This is the principle that's going to push back on that. And it's going to say, no, the majority or even all of the New Testament documents and the Old Testament documents are exactly that. They're documents. They are sustained narratives or sustained, sustained stories or they're sustained arguments. Like, for example, we have four Gospels about Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. They are sustained stories about Jesus. And so if we're going to read these stories as the authors intended them, and as God intends for us to read them today, we're going to read these stories, these Gospel accounts about Jesus as sustained narratives, meaning if we're going to properly understand them, we need to read these stories from beginning to end, and we need to read them and to understand them as a story. And so they weren't intended by God or by the biblical authors to be read at like maybe, let's say, the episodic level. They weren't intended to be read by taking individual passages out of the story and interpreting those individual passages and then going back to the story. It's actually, I think the gospel authors would say, it's actually in light of the whole story that's been told about Jesus that we make sense of, like, let's say, the individual sayings of Jesus or individual parables of Jesus. It's actually in light of the whole story that the Gospels have written about Jesus that we understand like particular parables of his. 
And that argument, that same that same principle of interpretation applies to Paul's letters. Let's say, so we have sustained stories about Jesus in the Gospels. In Paul's letters, for the most part, and some would, some would push back against this, but for the most part, what we have in Paul's letters are sustained arguments. By saying that, I just mean when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, there's 16 chapters, it's Romans 1 through 16. If we're going to understand what God wants us to, to come to know, if we're going to properly understand what God wants wants us to come to know through interpreting Romans, and if we're going to understand what Paul meant by writing Romans, we need to read the whole of Romans. We need to read Romans 1 through 16 and then draw our conclusions about what Paul is saying and about what Paul is arguing. We need to read the whole of the letter and the whole of the argument and maybe attempt to find the, its climax, which, which I would argue is in Romans 11. And so it's in doing that that we come to properly understand Romans rather than saying, hey, I'm going to nitpick Romans 4 and I, I'm going to really understand a couple verses in Romans 4 and I'm not going to look at anything else in Romans. Like I think Paul would be, what Paul would say, and I think God says to us today, no, that's not how we ought to understand scripture. We ought to read the whole of Romans and then it's only in light of all of Romans that we understand certain passages of Romans. And then we can apply that principle of interpretation to not just individual documents of the Bible, but to the whole of the scriptural witness. Because what we have in Christian scripture is not just individual documents like within the Bible. We actually have a sustained, I would argue, story that's being told from Genesis to Revelation. And these documents that we have in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are situated within what we call a canon. And we can do we can do a podcast, it'd be really interesting actually to do this, on the formation of the canon and how it is that we came to have what we call the Christian Bible. But now that we have the Christian Bible, as we interpret individual verses within Luke's gospel in light of the entire story that he's written about Jesus, as we do that with individual books, we ought to do that with the whole of the Christian Bible. We ought to understand, let's say, John's gospel, the particular document in the New Testament, in light of the whole scriptural witness from Genesis to Revelation. And that is ultimately how we do biblical theology well. That's ultimately how we become better readers of scripture. And that's ultimately how we formulate our own doctrinal statements, or that's how we ought to do it. So rather than quoting individual verses in scripture, we ought to read the whole of the scriptural revelation from Genesis to Revelation, no pun intended. And only then can we properly formulate our doctrine. And only then can we answer the question that we're trying to answer today, the question relating to women in ministry. And so now I want to move to actually apply these principles of biblical interpretation to the question that we're asking today. And that question is, can women, one, participate in gospel ministry, and two, can they be pastors? So let's apply the first principle of historical distance to the text which we looked at earlier, the problematic text, right? Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 14 that women are to be silent, and then the Deutero-Pauline statement. So I don't think it was written by Paul, but by someone who was like Paul, maybe one of his own students in 1 Timothy. And I think the first thing we have to say in accounting for the historical distance of these texts is this, and I'm stealing this from someone, and I can't remember who it was, who said this. A New Testament scholar has said this. When we're reading Paul's letters, one thing we have to account for is the fact that we are reading someone else's mail. Paul is addressing certain things in these particular communities that we, 
as interpreters 2,000 years removed from the situations that he's addressing aren't aware of. That Paul's addressing certain things. And part of our attempt to interpret Paul's letters is to reconstruct, historically reconstruct, the things that he is addressing in the particular communities that he's writing to. And that process, that, that historical process of reconstruction can be difficult, but I think it is important in accounting for the historical distance of these texts because Paul's commandments, Paul's like admonitions to these particular communities in his letters are to these communities. When Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, he's not writing to the whole church. He is writing to the church of Corinth. When the Deutero-Pauline author is writing 1 Timothy, we think he's writing to the church in Ephesus, or at least the, the author of 1 Timothy portrays himself as writing to the church in Ephesus. And so that, that is important, that Paul is addressing certain circumstances within these local churches, and he's not addressing the church at large. He's not writing to the whole church. And so I would suggest that when we read these particular letters sent to these particular communities, one of the tasks of the interpreter is to ask the question, what here is Paul saying that is universally true about the gospel? And what here is only contingently true about the community that he's addressing. So that that last word, I know it's a complicated word, but it's a word that New Testament scholars use to talk about Paul's letters being contingent, meaning they're situated within a certain time and place addressing certain needs within a community. And so it's been commonly thought that within Paul's letters, there are contingent principles and there are central principles, which are true everywhere and in every place. And I think those truths have to do with the gospel and Paul's center, like that which Paul says consistently everywhere. And we, we've seen, I think, in our little, our little survey of Paul's letters that Paul doesn't say that women must be silent in every church. He doesn't say it to the church in Rome. He doesn't say it to the churches of Galatia. He doesn't really even say it when he's writing Ephesians. And some people don't think Paul wrote Ephesians. We can do a podcast on that later. But when he's writing Ephesians, he doesn't really say it. Some, some people have twisted his words, I think, with the household colds household codes in Ephesians 5 to make him say, seem like he's saying that. But so when we account for the historical distance of the, the Pauline epistles of Paul's letters, we can see that we actually are met with the task of deciding and interpreting whether Paul's meaning this for the church at large and the whole church or these particular churches. And when we apply the second principle of biblical interpretation, right, which was the literary unity of the, of the individual biblical authors and the documents which they wrote, we'd come to see that if Paul is saying that women aren't allowed to teach or preach or open their mouths in a church, he's not entirely consistent with himself. We saw in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul assumed that women were prophesying, that they were opening their mouths in the Corinthian church. And yet in 1 Corinthians 14, he says women are to be silent. So I think we're met with the task of interpreting the second phrase about women being silent in light of the first, which assumes women are already speaking. And so we might think that Paul's addressing a particular, particular situation within the Corinthian church where some women might be unruly in the way in which they prophesied during the worship gatherings, because that seems to be something which Paul is concerned with in his Corinthian letter, is the order of worship in the Corinthian church. And so when we apply the first two principles 
of biblical interpretation to one of the problematic texts that we've looked at. We can see that the Bible might not actually be saying what some people think it's saying relating to women in ministry. And I think especially, this is especially true when we apply the third principle of biblical interpretation to this question, this question about women in ministry. And that, remember, that third principle of interpreting scripture and reading and being good readers of scripture is reading not only individual passages, not only individual verses in light of the whole document within which that verse is contained, but also reading individual books of the Bible in light of the whole of the scriptural witness, in light of all of the books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And I think when we do that, when we read Paul's letters in light of everything that scripture has to say about ministry and about the proclamation of the gospel, we come to see that Paul's not saying what a lot of people think he is saying. And I think the foremost place The most important place that I would send anyone to who's wrestling with this question, who's worried about this question, who has gotten um, questions about women in ministry would be the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus. Because it's actually in the ministry of Jesus where we see that the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, radically empowered women to participate in his inauguration of the kingdom of God. He radically empowered women to go forth and to share the good news about God's kingdom being established on earth as in heaven and the good news about God becoming king on earth as in heaven. And there are many places we could go to see this, but because of time, I want to go to only one, and that's Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And so if you're not familiar with the story, Jesus and his disciples show up at a well. And his disciples go into the town to get some provisions. And Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman at the well. And we, honestly, we should do a podcast one one day about Jew-Samaritan relations because it's really interesting. But long story short, the Jews and the Samaritans did not like one another. They, in fact, hated one another. Jews thought Samaritans were half-breeds. So it's actually, it's actually incredible that Jesus even speaks to this woman. And the woman, you can tell in the story when you read the story, and I would encourage you to go read it. But she is very surprised that Jesus even speaks to her. One, because she's a Samaritan. And two, because she's a woman. But it's actually the the latter half of the story that's most important for the question that we're seeking to answer today about women in ministry. And then the woman actually comes to believe Jesus. And the evangelist John comes to tell us in John chapter 4, verse 39, he writes this about the woman at the well. Remember, she's a woman, and she's a Samaritan, and John writes, quote, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so John the Evangelist tells us that many Samaritans came to believe in Jesus as Israel's Messiah, not because of a male evangelist, but because of a female evangelist who even happened to be a Samaritan. And many Samaritans came to believe. They came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah because of her testimony. Now, we know that she would have to open her mouth and teach and preach and proclaim the good news about Jesus if that entire Samaritan village, if many Samaritans were to come to believe in Jesus as Israel's Messiah because of her testimony. So we know also from within scripture that women, not only women, but a Samaritan woman who for a first century Jew, right? Remember historical distance within Jesus's world, Samaritans were like half-breeds to Jews. Jews would have thought they were half-breeds. So in Jesus's world, this is, this is a radical empowerment 
of a woman to participate in proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And I think we ought to read the hard verses in Paul's letters that are addressed to particular churches and particular problems that these churches are dealing with. We ought to read those hard verses in light of the whole scriptural witness, which has a story about a female evangelist proclaiming the good news about Israel's Messiah, Jesus, and not just proclaiming it, but many of her fellow Samaritans coming to believe in Jesus alongside of her. And because of her testimony, which by definition is verbal, like she's opening her mouth and sharing this testimony, this good news about Jesus. And so I think that's really important. And I think that's one way in which we can wrestle with the hard verses in Paul's letters. But I also, I think there's another way. And this actually comes from Paul. And we'll close with this. And a little preface to the reading of scripture that we're about to read. In the ancient world, when someone sent an epistle to someone, when, when someone sent a letter to someone, there would be an official letter carrier carrying that epistle to the recipient of the letter. And upon arrival, the person who is carrying the letter, who's delivering the letter to the recipient, would publicly read the letter, especially if it's to a corporate body like a church. They would read the letter and then they would explain the contents of the letter to the congregation, to the gathering of the people that they're delivering the letter to. And this is really significant when we interpret Paul's letter to the Romans. So we've already talked about it. Paul's letter to the Romans has 16 chapters. And at the start of the 16th chapter, he writes this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Kincry, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many, and of myself as well. End quote. And I think this is really significant because most modern New Testament scholars think that Phoebe, who is a woman of the first century, she's a friend of Paul's, most New Testament scholars agree that Phoebe is probably the one who is delivering the letter of Romans to the churches, to the house churches of Rome. And therefore, she is the one who is publicly expounding. She's publicly teaching on the letter of Romans. She's reading it line by line, and she's answering questions about it. She's explaining what Paul means by certain language that he uses. And I think that's really significant because that means the first ever person to teach Romans, the first ever person to, in a sense, preach on the letter of Romans was a woman named Phoebe, a woman who had been commissioned and sent by the Apostle Paul to expound upon and teach on the letter that he himself had authored. And so I think when we read these other problematic verses in Paul, these other verses that make us cringe and then make it hard to trust Scripture and then make it hard to read and understand Scripture, when we encounter those passages in other letters of Paul, we need to read them in light of knowing that Paul himself commissioned a woman named Phoebe to deliver a letter that he had sent to the house churches of Rome. He commissioned her to teach on that letter. And so I, I hope you find that encouraging. I hope that just emboldens you. If, if you're a woman, I hope that encourages and emboldens you to go forth and to share the good news of Jesus in spite of the criticism, in spite of whoever might say that you don't have the authority and that you shouldn't be allowed to teach or to preach. Because I don't think that's what scripture says. I, I just don't think it is. And I think when we read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we actually see that scripture says the opposite. We actually see that scripture empowers women to go forth and to share the good news of Jesus. And we, we see that Jesus himself radically empowered a woman in his day 
to share the good news of what he had done in her own life. And many came to believe because of her testimony. And I pray that you hear that and that you go, that you go and you share what Jesus has done in your life and that people come to trust in the name of Israel's Messiah because of that. And we also see that the same is true for Paul, that he radically empowered a woman named Phoebe to teach on the letter that he had written to the house churches of Rome. And let's close with with one more reflection. And I think this shows us just how easy it is to impose our own ideas and beliefs on what scripture is saying onto scripture itself, rather than letting scripture shape us and form us. So I don't know what Bible translation you have, but this is just a truth about Bible translation. Translation is interpretation. You've probably heard that before. The The documents that we have, the New and the Old Testaments, weren't re- originally written in English. The Old Testament was written in, in Hebrew and in, in some Aramaic in some places, and the New Testament is mostly written in Greek. And all also in Aramaic in some places, and some quotes of Jesus, because Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. We can see how our own like theological presuppositions, our own ideas affect translators. And I think we see this in the way in which translators of the Bible translate what we just read, Romans 16, 1. So before we actually look at certain translations of Romans 16, 1, it's important that we talk about a Greek word, diakonos which was very significant in the early church. And it probably sounds familiar to you because that word worked itself, worked its way into English, to the English word of deacon, which is now in a lot of churches, like in my own tradition, in the Anglican tradition, that is an official office that one might hold in the church, a deacon. And I know that's true for a lot of traditions um, in the church. In Greek, it literally means a servant. But as we've come to see in some of the New Testament documents that in, in the early church, one who was a deacon was, was set apart to perform a special function or office in the church. So it literally did mean servant. And then it came to denote something more specific in the early church, like a particular servant who's been called and set apart to serve the poor and the needy on behalf of the church. It came to be an official title or office in the church. And that word in Romans 16 is attributed to Phoebe. And I think we can see how translators' own theological assumptions affect the way in which they translate that Greek word, diakonos. The NRSV, which is generally a more literal translation, translates it this way. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. And so you see, the NRSV has chosen to render that Greek word by transliterating it into English, by leaving it untranslated. That's what transliterating it means. The translators thought that Phoebe was a deacon, that deacon had come to mean this particularly set-apart person who was serving on behalf of the church. And the NRSV is pretty consistent in transliterating this Greek word, diakonos, to mean deacon, rather than translating it. And this is true also for the ESV. The ESV the English Standard Version, typically transliterates deacon, but with the one exception of this case in Romans 16.1, when diakonos is used referring to male leaders within the church, the ESV and the translators behind the ESV chose to transliterate it, to leave it untranslated, to deacon. But when Paul uses this word in Romans 16.1 and attributes it to Phoebe and calls Phoebe a diakonos, a servant, 
a servant of the church. The ESV renders it servant instead of deacon. And I, I think that was an intentional move made by the editors of the ESV because they presuppose that women can't be deacons in the church and that women aren't called to be set apart to serve on behalf of the church and aren't called to this office. And so we see that our own presupposed beliefs about scripture work our way into the very way in which we translate scripture. And so I I just want to close again, encouraging any one of you who have felt belittled or have felt like the Bible doesn't teach that you can preach or teach or participate in gospel ministry, I want to encourage you that it actually does and that the task of biblical interpretation might be more complex than some seem to think and that just because there are individual verses within the Bible that seem to problematize or make it difficult for you to do ministry, that the Bible actually can teach something very different. And it, in fact, I think does teach something very different. And it would say, along with the God who wrote it, along with Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, would say that you're radically empowered to do ministry and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Whenever you're listening on the Biblia Sacra podcast, I'm grateful for each and every one of you. I know today was a long lesson, and the next episode of this podcast is actually going to be a theological reflection on women in ministry and a theological reflection from Genesis to Revelation. And it's going to be, in a sense, almost another case study um, in looking at what scripture might have to say about women participating in God's ministry, not just what individual verses have to say, but what the whole of the biblical story might have to say. So with that, we'll close. And yeah, I look forward to being with you all again. Thanks, friends.